I understand that this is your first book. Is that correct? It is. My first book, thrilled to have it out. It's been an incredible learning curve and a, a really amazing experience. Well, and that book is Leading in a Social World, Stop Social Media Marketing and Build Social Capital Instead by R. Aaron Templer, who is my guest today. And last week we were talking about the idea of building social capital instead of just blah, 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 posting on social media. And I think this is very timely because social media has become this, uh, yeah, I got to do it thing for marketers around the world. And one half of your company hates the fact that, well, what's the ROI? Prove it to me. I know we have to do it, but it's, it's almost like taking vitamins. Do they really work? Or are we just paying for expensive urine? I don't know. But what you're saying is kind of the thesis statement of your book is, yeah, it's not expensive urine. We're actually getting something out of it. And that is durable social relationships, durable social capital. At least that is if you're following the prescriptions that you've got in this book. Correct? Let's see. Yes, I, of course. There's always nuance to all that, but that's 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 well said. I appreciate you laying it out that way. I, the, the if is a big one, right? I mean, if you are willing to stop sort of treating your social media community like a marketer and start treating it like a leader, I mean, leadership has been dealing with how to build and use social capital for a long time. So really what I've done is, first of all, research the heck out of social media marketing and how we enter into social constructs from a neuroscience standpoint and sort of demonstrate how those things are totally at friction with one another and why, in my, I think the data backs it up, but also in my opinion, why social media marketing doesn't work. Then the second half of the book teaches you how to think like a leader and how leaders, how we, what we know from the research and from the years of people doing it from a leadership perspective, build social capital. And so we can take those lessons and apply them to our social groups online that we're managing. If we kind of, if there's that if, right? It's a big kind of bold, all caps, if we stop thinking like marketers and start thinking like leaders. Well, that's the key. I mean, the more I think of it, the whole idea of, I almost think the word leader that's a problematic word because some people believe a leader is someone who goes out and says, we're going this way. Right. When the good leaders are always looking back over their shoulder and using every lever of psychology and sociology to be the apparent figurehead of where that leadership is going. Right. And I don't want to say they, they use Jedi mind tricks to, to plant the idea in the followers, but there is a little bit of that, yeah. which is a leader should have a goal, a clear goal. But as we all know, you can have a goal and you can say, we're going there. And a lot of people can say, no, we're not. Or they can sit down and not go anywhere. So I guess what you're saying is that leadership can be incredibly powerful, but... The power of the leader does not reside solely within the leader. That power, it needs to be recognized. A good leader will recognize that I'm only as powerful as the power you give me. You know, it's the consent of the governed. If, if you guys don't consent, I can say eat your peas, but you aren't going to eat your peas. Right. That's interesting because it's a totally different mindset than a marketer. A marketer. I tell you what my stuff does and why it's good for you and all this stuff. So you finish the equation. You follow the logical path and go, oh, I should buy that. I should engage with that product or service. That's not what a leader 
does. So the whole idea of leadership, I'm sorry, I need examples. I need stories. Can you pull some out of your bag of tricks that'll help illustrate the concept specifically of stop being a marketer and assume more of a leadership mindset? Yeah, you bet. Let me let me just start with this kind of premise first. I, I wanted to touch on what you were saying about power. I think that I'm on this mission actually for to elevate marketers the way that we think about ourselves and what we do and to start thinking about ourselves as leadership, as leaders rather, for a couple of different reasons. One, I think it makes us better marketers. And I actually think that leaders, there's a, a very strong intersection and overlap between what marketers do and what leaders do in the area of influence. And you touched on power. I think it was Jim Collins that talks about, you know, if I put a gun to your head, I can make you do a lot of things. That's power, but it's not influence. I take the gun away, I've probably worsened the relationship, in fact, and it's not at all sustainable. So leaders recognize, as you alluded to, that the real power in the relationship lies with the constituents. I hate using the word follower, so let's call right, them constituents. Right. Mm-hmm. So if, if I just want to stop following somebody, I can do that. So the, the, the power always lies within the constituent. And so leaders spend a lot of time understanding that dynamic. What, how do I influence without power? And when you stop to think about it, DP, isn't that what marketers do? We find up people. We don't have any power over them. We try to understand their needs and what they, what, how we can solve them. And then we look to influence them without any power. We do it through stories, through you know, engaging brands. We do it through icons. We do it through wayfinding, whatever that looks like in, in, in our worlds, in our marketing worlds. So I think I've actually personally learned more from the leadership discipline about influence than I ever have from the marketing world. So I think there is a really strong overlap there. The second reason I think that it's important is because when you start thinking and we live in a social world and it's growing even more so, we are wired to want to connect. And so we are crafting our world both digitally and in person in ways to connect as we are, uh, we've evolved to do that. I think we need to understand social constructs in a much more sophisticated way than we've looked at them in the past as audiences and market segments. We have to think of them as a leader does and how leaders build and use social capital, which is what we talked about last week. So that's a really important premise, I think, when entering into this. And it's different. It's a new way of thinking, right? I mean, as marketers, we spend a lot of time training ourselves on how to get clicks and how to move someone through a funnel. And you know, what are the, what's the best time of day to send an email? And like all these sort of tactic-based sort of, you know, check the box kind of training when really we don't take a step back, I think, and think about really what we do from a more sort of elevated position. So some examples that I talk about in the book, we talked last week about Zappos. They're sort of groundbreaking in the way that they've used social media. Their marketing activities, if you want to call them that, are really intended to connect instead of convert they do a lot of what uh, we're talking about here, which is understanding a uh, flattening of the relationship, entering into a, a relationship with a, a mindset of people building instead of people using a much more kind of servant leadership mindset Zappos does. I talk about, I interviewed a bunch of people from Zappos and they were, they were really gracious to give me some of their time. I interviewed someone from Xbox as well. They're really well known for the way that they support and engage their users online. Both of these folks, by the way, talk to me about they don't hire people who know social media. It's not the technical capital that they're looking for. They want people who have a passion for helping people and for connecting with Xbox users. It's a big takeaway that I learned. I spoke with somebody who had kind of marketing function in a debt relief organization. She had these incredible measurements around the people who touched her million plus strong social community that she built online and how much more they meant to the company. 
And she told me that she stopped hiring marketers because she got tired of training them to unlearn marketing. That this idea of building community and building social capital is so sort of foreign to marketers that, that she, she needed them to unlearn stuff. And she's got tired of training them to do that. That group is called Care One and her case study and her interview is in the book as well. So those are three examples. There's some smaller ones I touch on Live Strong a little bit and, and how they kind of leverage when it's time to, to do fundraising. They've built so much social capital that they, they barely have to ask their communities when they, when they do some, some funding. And then there's a, a social media music organization that's really powerful. They've created a band camp. We talk about band camp and the way that they have musician Fridays where they return a larger percentage of the sales to, to musicians to just kind of honor their community in a way that's really unique and understand sort of, again, bring the, the audience or not their audience, but their communities together in a, in a more democratized relationship. Those are a few, few examples. This episode of the Nonfiction Brand Podcast is brought to you by my new book, Nonfiction Brand. Discover, craft, and communicate the completely true, completely you brand you already are, now available on Amazon.com. Jay Baer, best-selling author of Talk Triggers, said, The book is outstanding. Highly recommended. A spectacularly useful guide to personal branding that pulls off the difficult trick of being both realistic and inspirational. A must-read, regardless of where you are in your own brand-building journey. To get your copy, head on over to Amazon.com and search Nonfiction Brand. And let's get you all the credit you deserve for the completely true, completely you brand you already are. Well, I, I think it's really interesting is, and the one I want to kind of underline or highlight is you mentioned Livestrong because as a brand that was founded upon the story of Lance Armstrong, the great, well, the not so great former winner of multiple Tour de France's and all that. That was a brand that was destroyed. I'll be honest with you. It was destroyed when Lance Armstrong turns out to be this serial doper who and all that stuff. And I speak as someone who followed the Tour de France like crazy when he was making his runs and now can't even stand to watch it. I'm a, I was heartbroken. I am a heartbroken. Put it this way. The durable good of my heart was broken by that. But as you alluded to, Live Strong still exists as a community. And how durable can a brand be to overcome the essential existential death of its founding story. Mm, good point. You yeah. Know, so that that's amazing to me. But evidently, it, it's because the community is more durable than the reputation of the founder or the the founding story person, whatever. Yeah. No, I think I think that's a good connection for sure. They they spend so much time truly creating and building a community of, of people building where they're offering so much help and support for cancer survivors in so many different ways all the time that, like I said, when it comes time for a fundraiser, everybody's there to help live strong as well, because they know how much they give the community. So yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's an interesting, interesting observation you made. So you've provided some great business corporate level things. Let's, can we play some scenarios out? I just want to kind yeah. of pick your brain and let's do it. I'll pick someone I know very, very dearly myself. Let's just say <laughs> there's this guy and he's got this uh, conceptual foundation called 
the nonfiction brand podcast and the book, nonfiction brand, et cetera. It's all based on the idea that you have a completely true, completely you brand story that you just need to discover, craft, and communicate consistently over and over and over and over and over again. And we live in a golden age of social media platforms where, yes, there are paid versions of them all, but you can get 90% of what they have to offer for free. So let's just say I was interested in building a community with a durable community that was not just me talking at people, but conversations. And then ideally, the community starts hosting their own conversations and their own mutual support mechanisms that I, I'm guessing Livestrong must have in spades, given the fact that they were able to survive the scandal of Lance Armstrong, right? So the way I likened it is if you have a bring your own beer party at your house, you play some music, you put out some chips and everyone brings their own beer, you get the benefit of being the person who throws a great party, but a lot of the party came when people walked in the door. In fact, there was no party before people walked in the door. Mm. How could I, or people like me, who were interested in, in building those durable social capital relationships, do you have any tips on what I could do, what we could do on a daily basis to, to begin developing foundational relationships like that? You bet. I've got a lot of them in the book. There's eight essential practices that I talk about in leading in a social world that help. It's funny because the first practice of leaders that this is all based on the research, the first practice that, that leaders who are savvy in building social capital know is that it's complex and sophisticated. So that's the first practice in the list of eight is embrace the complexity, acknowledge the sophistication. So it sort of automatically deconstructs the idea that there can be eight essential practices. Uh, right, but that's the right. first thing, like mm -hmm. recognize that, you know, maybe you've been through some leadership programs or some kind of self-development work. If you've ever done any of that kind of stuff, you know how hard it is. I mean, it's some of the hardest stuff that we can do. Relationships are complex, especially when you start getting them into networks and the way they operate and the way they work is very different than marketers think about segments and audiences. So you got to embrace the complexity and acknowledge that and start spending some time in the leadership and social networking science world, I think, to, to really understand how to intervene and influence groups like that. The second thing is to treat them and think of them as people and not segments. And surprise, people are made of emotions, right? So we talked last week about letting some cracks open up and just kind of show who you are and connect with people on an emotional level. There's a real strong need for a number of different reasons that we talk about in the book to get your sort of self and brand, or if you want to think about it as a brand strategy together first. We all require credibility from people that we follow and from groups that we want to be a part of. And we can sniff out immediately somebody who is uh, BSing us, right? We've all right, got that right. meter and, and it pegs quickly. So you need to bring your authentic self to the situation. So spend some time understanding who you are, what your weaknesses are, what you're good at, what you're bad at, where you need some help, and then be that, you know, 100% and communicate it quite a bit. And then you got to walk the talk. So if there's one common theme among leaders and all the leadership literature that I've ever spent, I've spent a lot of time in it, it's that we follow people that walk the talk, right? And we can sense that quickly too. When somebody just says one thing and does another, we require somebody to, to follow up what they say. There's a lot of uncertainty in all of this. That's the next essential. So learn some improv. 
uh, get ready to change, get ready to listen and move with, again, we talked about this last time, social groups tend to be like starlings much more than they, like a murmuration than they, than they do any kind of market segment. So spend some time with that every day. Think about what are my biases? How can I improvise? Am I listening? And then you got to get ready for the long haul. So it's not a punctual exercise building social capital. And then a lot of questions. This, you don't see a lot of this in social media, right? Like, like a, a customer will post a problem or, or a comment and the brand just reacts as opposed to asking questions and understanding how they can help build that person and what they need up. So a lot of questions. That's a daily sort of discipline you can, you can take as you build social capital. And then the last thing is this notion of people building as opposed to people using. Stop thinking of these social constructs that you're managing or interacting with as funnels for conversion and start looking at them as how can I connect? How, what do they need and how can I build them up? How's that? Yeah, that's good. It looks like I need to do a little bit of reading in your brand new book, Leading in a Social World, Stop Social Media Marketing and Build Social Capital Instead. Now, Aaron, you said that this is available just about everywhere? Yep. You can go to just leadinginasocialworld.com and there's links there to all your favorite bookstores <laughs> online and otherwise. You can get the ebook and you can get the paperback. No audiobook yet. Working on that. Yeah, boy, it takes a while to do audiobooks. I, I think I'm going to have an audiobook out on my new book probably a year from now. Uh, we'll see. But yeah. uh, I, I wanted to talk to you about your agency because it has a very interesting name. Can you tell us about that name? Sure. Yeah. Three over four is the name of the agency. People, it does kind of pique the interest. It's a little unusual, although we chose it because we thought it would be a nice brand. Frankly, it's kind of sticky and seems to work pretty well. But there is a story behind it. It's, it's I'm a, I'm a musician hobby musician. I see all the guitars in, in the back, in your right. background. We're going to we're gonna have to talk about this on a different podcast, maybe. Right. But so I found as a drummer and as a percussionist that polyrhythms have kind of a larger meaning in the world. I think that that we all are sort of polyrhythmic and, and kind of finding the alignment um, among all of us creates richer meaning in the world. I think it also is true for strategy, brand strategy. The more we can kind of uh, align all this seemingly disparate data, the better our plans and, and marketing activities are. So three over four refers to a polyrhythm. And we're also kind of polymathic. We're a full service agency. Um, so there's a lot of tie-ins there. So yeah, that's the name. Thanks for asking. No, no, it's really interesting because the more I think about it, is it, am I, am I trying to force a connection here? Maybe, but we all know when things are out of rhythm. I mean, there are some people are just arrhythmic, you know, they, they can't dance, they can't clap, they, you know, they just can't do anything about that. But most of us are very attuned to rhythm, even if we are not musically trained. And what I mean by that is we can watch a music video that was edited by someone who was arrhythmic and you, it just feels off. There's this cognitive mm -hmm. dissonance that happens because it doesn't feel rhythmic or if there's a bad uh, dubbing job on a foreign film or something, the rhythm of the mouth doesn't meet the rhythm of the words. I think there's this, and I'm sure there's probably some science on this. I can't quote it obviously, but there has to be something about rhythm that we inherently get as a species. Yeah. Oh, and for sure. 
and it's very true. It's very much, I would call, uh, akin to authenticity or genuineness. You mentioned before about us having very highly developed BS detectors. I agree with that. In general, the majority of humankind can spot a charlatan a mile away, or at least think something's not quite right there. Mm -hmm. That's true of brands, whether they're personal brands, small business brands, mega company, corporate brands, we can tell when something's not really true. And I always like to use, and obviously I have a, a penchant, a penchant for outdoor <laughs> companies, but Patagonia as an outdoor company has always struck me as very true and rhythmically aligned with itself. And its founder, Yvonne Chouinard, uh, who I deeply respect, but other brands, it's kind of like the walk, the walk, talk to the talk thing. They talk the mm -hmm. talk, but the walk, the rhythm of the walk doesn't just doesn't jive with mm. the, the rhythm of the talk, you know? So this is my long winded way of saying that companies can be out of rhythm with what they say they are. Mm -hmm. Individuals can be rhythmically misaligned. And we can tell the same way that we can smell something's funky. We can tell rhythmically something's funky. And I mean funk mm -hmm. in the good way when it comes to music, because I love me some funk. Just telling you. So that's very, very interesting. And obviously the, the play on poly with the multiple disciplines that you serve and all that stuff, that makes total sense. Very, very cool. So we're coming towards the end of this podcast. Again, I want people to know not only the places where they can get your book, but also how they could get in touch with you or follow you online, because I assume that you're doing a pretty good job or trying to create durable, good social capital for not only your company, but yourself as well. So if I wanted to get some of that social capital goodness from Aaron Templer, where would I engage with you? That's nice of you to say. I, I, I am not much of a social media power user, but I'm active on Twitter, Aaron Templer, A-A-R-O-N, and it's Templer, E-R, not like the saint and not like the Knights of Templer in the movies and the book. And same with LinkedIn, it's just backslash, you know, in backslash Aaron Templer. But yeah, I, it's interesting that you, you bring that up because especially now that I've got a book out there that pretty much posits the first half of the book takes down social media marketing. And now I've, I'm in this interesting position of, okay, well, what kind of marketing am I going to do on social media to be sort of true to that? It's an interesting uh, little dilemma that I've kind of found myself in. It's been interesting to explore, but that's where I am. Oh, no, <laughs> I, I, I totally get it. The hardest thing for anybody who works in advertising and marketing is advertising and marketing themselves, especially if it's a, a product that is so of your own DNA, like a book. Do you want to talk about a little bit of the joys and sorrows of being a first-time author? Uh, yeah, I mean, if you think if you think your audience would be interested in it, I mean, I, I think um, so because a lot of people have thought about writing a book. Yeah, and but not everybody tells the truth about what it takes to write a book. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I found the writing of it to be extremely fulfilling. It, it wasn't a challenge to get motivated to write for me, so. Um, I, I think that's a good sign maybe for, for wanting to do more of it. I had a, this, this kind of interested party friend, colleague, whatever, that she, she told me that I'll be your 
accountability partner is the way she put it. Like when you start getting stuck, you can call me and I'll keep you on track. And really what I did, I, what I needed, I wanted her to take some of my clients away. Like I just needed time, you know, like how right. do I, how do right. I carve out the time? So that was the biggest challenge. The second challenge during the writing process itself was when to stop the research. So we did a bunch of research and really went deep. And, you know, there's this sort of feeling of wanting to make sure that I'm putting stuff out there that's legit, right? I don't, I don't want to kind of leave myself flopping in the wind too much. So, but that's a huge rabbit hole. And it was kind of trying to figure out where to stop that was, was tricky. And now the publishing part, I wanted to do as much of this as myself as I could just to learn about it. And I'm finding it's taking a lot more time than I anticipated. And I enjoy these conversations. And yet there are, there's a lot of this kind of self-promotion that feels very uncomfortable to me. So it's sort of the post writing of it that I'm, that I'm now sort of into this, I don't know, evaluating the value of, I guess, but the writing itself was super. And that's the whole thing. I mean, this is where the personal branding part comes in. I hate to say it, but own your story, man. You, you spend a lot of time writing it, own it and get out there and tell it because there are people and not everybody's going to dig it. Not everyone is going to want to listen, but the ones who do are, and especially the ones who value your combination of story tied to metrics, because there are a lot of storytellers out there. Not a lot of them bring the data. So if you can, right. and there, but, but especially now where everything can be measured, a lot of people want to see that data. So especially, yeah. this is a perfect demonstration, not only for you, but for your company. And now you have this big honking thing to plonk on their desk and say, I know what I'm talking about. I wrote a book about it. It's an unlock. It's a tremendous personal brand unlock. So I want to applaud you, Aaron Templer. Thank you. For, Thank you. for unlocking and leveling up to the next level of your personal brand, which, by the way, is the exact same thing as your agency brand because you're the founder and leader of it, right? Is right, there a difference? Right. I don't think so. <laughs> I like it. I like it a lot. What, what was the experience with your book? I mean, I'd like to hear, I mean, how long has it been out? What, what was your process? Are you, do you oh, consider yourself process. a writer? What, uh, what was it like for you? Well, I'm one of those writers that I've heard it attributed to Dorothy Parker, but I think it was someone else who said, I hate writing, but I love having written. And mm, I've been yeah. a copywriter for 30 years. And I always like copywriting because it was all sprints. It's always, you know, like the longest copy I wrote, I wrote a coffee table book for a client, but even within that coffee table book were just blurb paragraphs. No paragraph was over a hundred yeah. words, you know? So everything was like headline sprint, paragraph sprint, you know? So it was, it was easier to do that. The first book I did called Rotoma, the ROI of social media top of mind was actually working with a colleague of mine who had this central idea Rotoma, return on top of mind of awareness, which is the essential benefit of social media. You get top of mind awareness via social media, blah, blah, blah. That's the thesis statement of the book, right. more or less. And he approached me about doing it because he, he knew I could help write it, edit it, and do all the artwork and everything else and self-publish it. Mm -hmm. That was a trek through the Siberia. You know, because mm. I I love doing everything myself. I hate doing everything myself. I'm a I'm not a perfectionist, right. but I am. You know that know that type of thing. Yeah. 
Right. And, and, but that book got done. It was well received. It's still available, all that stuff. And just like giving birth to a child, I can't claim to have ever done that other than being married to a woman who gave birth three times. I can't compare the pain levels, but I will say it's very similar. You get done with one kid, you go, oh, never do that again. Two years later, mm, let's kinda, think about the next one. Especially when you see one of your friends walking around with their new baby and you go, <laughs> so that's where the, the second book came out, nonfiction brand. Again, it was self-published, which frankly, I like. Would it be great if Wiley picked up a book and published it and distributed it for me? Yeah, but there's something really cool about saying, no, this is 100% my baby. Yeah, yeah. But the hardest thing is, is doing what you're doing now, which is getting out, talking about it, and letting people know why they should check it out. So the key thing, and I wrote about it in my book, is own your story. Only one person can tell your story, and that's you. And you've got a great story to tell that is now on paper. So now... Uh you know, right. I, I, I'm so happy for you and applaud you for doing it because when I say it's an unlock, you will find out over the next couple of years just how big an unlock it is when it comes to the number of people who might ask you to speak at events to uh, it's a great um, thing when you're pitching new business to just give everybody in the room a copy of the book. Bottom line is most of them won't read it but it'll sit on their desk as a constant reminder of that boy, that Aaron Templer guy. He's a smart guy. He wrote a book. Thank you. Because it's really encouraging to, to hear that. And yeah, I mean, it feels like one of these things I'd, I'd like to keep in touch just to, just to commiserate oh, yeah. and share experiences. And, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate you. Let me share your platform here to, to kind of talk a little bit about it. And I'm with you. I think there's a lot of, you know, I, I networked for a while trying to get it, uh, this idea published, you know, in the traditional way and found it really difficult to yeah. kind of make those inroads. I ultimately had a conversation with this very legitimate publisher in New York, and she was super helpful and gracious with her time. And she said, you know, I, I could give you a deal right now. Not, not that she would have, but it, just to be illustrative, if it, this is more like it, if I gave you a deal right now, I would completely own you. I would have all the editing. We would change the title. Yep. I would like, yep. you have zero leverage. She, so she said, you'd be much better off, even if you still want to publish, you know, do traditional publishing later to kind of do it yourself the first time, establish a bit of a platform, and then you'll have more leverage when you come back to somebody like me to, to, to talk about a deal. So that made sense. That was kind of last straw, actually. And then I just busted it out. Yeah, that, that's 100% true. The other thing is the economics of it. You know, mm -hmm. if you're going to do it via Amazon's Kindle Direct Publishing, which is absolutely free, by the way, the reality is my book, I priced at $20. One, if, if I'm at a conference giving a presentation, I wanted to easily say it's $20. Give me a $20 bill or whip out your card and we'll, we'll do a square transaction. The economics are, let's see, and this is rough, so don't quote me on this. Amazon will print them on demand, deliver them, do all that stuff. All you have to worry about is at the end of the year, they'll give you a statement for taxes. And $20 for a book, my size book, 250 pages, whatever it is, I think is about, they'll take 40% uh, of it. And with shipping and stuff, I get an $8 royalty. 
Right. Stephen King doesn't get an $8 royalty per book, you know? Yeah. Well, you get, that's what you got on Stephen King. I like right. it. Well, yeah, well, if I sold as many millions of copies, I would be okay. Right. But but right. the economics are, put it this way, we live in a self-publishing golden age as well. It's a little bit involved, but if you can do it, why not? You know, I, I like to say that everybody has a broadcast TV studio in their smartphone. They have a broadcast radio studio in their smartphone. You can write a book on your smartphone. You can upload it to Amazon Kindle Direct Publishing on your smartphone. What's your excuse? And the answer is, it's, it takes some focus, and boy, it, it's painful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still... It, you're right how how sort of democratized that that's become but it's still a very privileged sort of exercise like i had i control my own time yeah. i've got a supportive spouse i had some disposable income i could carve out and control that time and it took a lot of time yeah. um and it you know i paid for editors i paid for a designer for the cover so you know there's still some things that that i think filter out a lot of voices that could yep. be to the table in, in some in some important ways but to your point it's it's not like printing presses of even five years ago right so um it's it's definitely much much more accessible yeah for sure yeah and that's the exciting thing so if you are like aaron templer the author of a brand new book leading in a social world stop social media marketing and build social capital instead you can get out there and write that book and get it into all sorts of places, including Jeff Bezos's house at Amazon.com. <laughs> so ch definitely check out that book there. Get up a copy and start thinking like a leader, not a marketer. Oh, God, that, yes. that single idea right there. I'm going to be chewing on that like some really tough beef jerky for the next week. And I Love can't it. thank you enough for that, Aaron. So... Thanks again for being on the Nonfiction Brand Podcast. I am your host, D.P. Knutton, and he is... Aaron Templer. And I'll be talking at you guys again next week. Bye-bye.